Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family Radio. Thank you for joining us as we continue our series on worldview. And in particular, we're trying to address ways that parents can build for themselves a thoroughly Christian worldview and then pass that on to their children. And in order to do that, we've distilled how to build a worldview in your life and in your children's life. We've distilled this down to seven questions. And today we're on question number five, and this is one of the real big ones for parents concerned with the moral life of their children in the contemporary world. And question five, our worldview question is, how do I know right from wrong? Or to put it in another way, what's my compass for moral decision-making? Remember, all of these worldview questions, these seven questions together, form like a pair of glasses that are maybe tinted from a Christ-centered perspective from which all decisions in life can be made. I doubt there's a concerned Catholic parent today who isn't concerned with moral decision-making, but moral decision-making is directly related to worldview, and this is underappreciated. And there are two questions related to uh, discerning or knowing right from wrong, and these are the two questions among the seven that I've categorized as the how do I know questions. And last time it was what is truth? How do I know what is truth? And directly related to that is how do I know right from wrong? This one is, what shall I say? There's two very clear paths ahead of you. Path number one, that knowing right from wrong is knowing that there's an objective and absolute moral truth. By objective, I mean that the truth is determined outside of yourself. You are not the authority for making the decisions. God is. And that there's a definite right and wrong for every person in every circumstances, in every time. And again, this comes from the outside by the authority of God. Now, the alternative to absolute moral truth is what is very widespread today, and that's called moral relativism. And that's simply that morals are relative, depending on the situation, uh, particularly for young people, depending on the person's feelings. And moral relativism says that there's no definite right or wrong for everyone. It's up to people to make their own moral choices. And hear this very clearly. All the chastity talks in the world, all the catechesis on Catholic moral teaching, theology of body CDs and books and lectures and conferences will be fruitless in the face of moral relativism. This is the thing that has to be established first in order that good moral decisions need to be made because objective truth says that the gift of sexuality is for marriage. 
moral relativism says, yeah, yeah, I, I acknowledge that, but we love each other. We have feelings for each other, and that determines what's right or wrong. So it's not just telling someone what's right or wrong, but where does the concept, the knowledge, the certainty of right or wrong come from? Does it come from within or it comes from God without? In the book Generation Next, it mentions a number of consequences based on surveys of what happens to a teenager without a belief system in absolute truth. And I think it's actually gotten worse. This is a few years back, and it's gotten worse, my guess, since then. But basically, without a belief system and absolute truth, a teen is twice as likely to watch a porn film, 36% more likely to lie to you, twice as likely to harm somebody, three times more likely to use illegal drugs, six times more likely to attempt suicide, and Christian youth who lack moral absolutes are four times more likely to approve of premarital intercourse as a moral choice. This is the biggie for moral decision-making, but again, I want parents to realize that all seven of these questions form together a worldview from which you can make such moral decisions. You just can't go for moral relativism. It's one of the seven. But here's a shocking, shocking discovery that George Barna made in his The Barna Study that a young person's view of sexual morality is more influenced by their view of truth than whether or not they claim to be practicing Christians. Did you hear this? In other words, this is the foundation. And if your very view of truth is skewed, remember that was our fourth question, your whole process of moral decision-making, question five, is going to be off. And even if you have all the catechesis in the world, if the foundation of your worldview is off and moral decision-making is off, then you're in deep trouble. You know, one of the things that I have done is try to listen to what the popes have said at World Youth Day. Uh, Pope John Paul II said this in World Youth Day in Denver, and it's you know, it's really good to keep your antenna up. These aren't just off-the-cuff homilies or whatever. They've thought about this, and I trust they were guided by the Holy Spirit. John Paul II said in Denver, vast sectors of society are confused about what is right and what is wrong. I would dare say that's the understatement of the 20th century, but he put his finger right on what's going on with young people. It's a vast confusion about what's right and what's wrong, and it's due to moral relativism. He said further in The Splendor of Truth, section 81, circumstances, in other words, the situation or intentions or my feelings, whatever, can never transform an act intrinsically evil by virtue of its object into an act subjectively good. Did you get that? There has to be an objective view of this, 
And if you simply turn it on the inside, you're going to be in trouble. Now, how do you teach yourself and your child how to detect moral relativism and also to reject it? I dare say the best place that I can think of that's pretty straightforward is in the book of Genesis and chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, Satan uses a certain strategy that is actually in the 21st century working exceedingly well to lead millions to hell. And I realize that there's a lot of people don't think anybody's going to be in hell, but that's, I'm sorry to say, millions are being led to hell by the same strategy used in Genesis 3. So if we see the strategy, and why would Satan change if it's working so well through the centuries and millennia? And here it is. Genesis 3, it says the serpent was more subtle. In other words, he knows what's going to really work and trip up mankind. He was more subtle than any other wild creature. And he said to the woman, and here it is, did God say, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? And then he goes on. The woman said, well, God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. And the serpent said, well, you will not die. You see, the serpent begins with doubting and questioning God's word. God's word is objective moral truth. Satan comes and simply said, did God say? He, he questions God's word. He doubts God's word. And once you start in this path, you just add a little bit of time, and this may have been compressed here, but you just add a little bit of time, and then you have the denial. You will not die. And then the hook. And there's, there is truth in every lie in order to make the lie effective. And here's the lie. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, there's a truth to that. Of course, they did die. That's where death came from, is this deception. This is the original deception, which is going on in public schools, in Catholic schools, in youth groups. It's going on over the airwaves. It's going on throughout our culture. But you will be like God means that you will become the one to determine good and evil. Now, here's a real deception. What if you are actually making the decision between good and evil, and you made the good choice, but you've swallowed the bait to become like God? Because that is going to be the final temptation of the Antichrist is telling mankind that, yes, you are part of the divine, you are divine, and you can determine for yourself what's right and wrong. St. John Paul II, in his encyclical Truth and Meaning, section 35, says this, and hear it carefully. Revelation teaches that the power to decide what is good and what is evil does not belong to man but to God alone, okay? And 
basically that section 35 of Truth and Meaning by John Paul II is the very context he was talking about Genesis chapter 3. The power to decide what is good and evil does not belong to man but to God alone. And when man attempts to do that, he is making the ultimate idolatrous choice of taking the place of God. Now, I'm going to share with you the most shocking and threatening statistic facing the future of the Catholic Church in the United States. And it is grossly underreported, although you may have heard me mention it a few times, it's grossly underreported. The Knights of Columbus sponsored a great survey across the United States wanting to find out what was going on with Catholic millennials. That's the 18 to 29-year-olds. And here it is. 82% of Catholic, Catholic millennials agree with the statement, quote, morals are relative. There is no definite right or wrong for everybody, unquote. 82% of Catholic millennials. And to make things even worse, I mean, our whole country is in a mess. And for moral decision-making, and the younger you get, the worse the moral decision-making goes, but yet 64% of American millennials in general agreed with the statement that there's no definite right or wrong for everyone, compared to 82% of Catholics. This means that a large majority of younger Catholics are even worse when it comes to moral relativism than the general public. If 82% of Catholic millennials say they believe in God, and yet 82% of Catholic millennials say morals are relative, they are believing that they are God in the sense that they can use the prerogative only God has to determine right from wrong. I've said this before, and it gets people upset, but, and I realize there's some very great exceptions in many places, but if I were to give a letter grade to Catholic moral education and, and, and moral education and dealing with this whole question of moral relativism is at the foundation of spiritual formation, if I would give a letter grade to the church in the United States and making this formation, it would be a big fat F without any doubt whatsoever. Uh, and again, I realize that there are many good exceptions, but this is what can bring down the church in the United States, and I know people don't like to hear that. This is what can destroy a culture. In ancient Israel, what, what was going on that so destroyed the country? Well, it says in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's moral relativism, simply doing what's right in your own eyes. Now, you need to know and you need to teach your children where they are going to find moral relativism because really it's, it's pervasive. But once you have the skills for it, for instance, if you're consuming modern media, they will have 
moral relativism. In other words, the ends justify the means. The situation demands you violate the moral law. No, I'm afraid not. That's as circumstances or intentions can never transform an act intrinsically evil into something good. It can't happen. And you're going to teach your children that. But where do you find moral relativism? Now, I have to admit, there's only one time in my life I've been literally yelling in a uh, priest office, and that was with a former nun who was teaching the youth in our parish that values clarification was the way Catholics make moral decisions, and I just couldn't sit for that. And she had a fancy master's degree from Boston University and was taught this is the way Catholics make moral decisions. So where did whoever's teaching your children go to school and what were they taught? So one of the questions you can ask a teacher, one of the questions you can ask a catechist, one of the questions you can ask anyone teaching the Catholic faith, how are we supposed to make moral decisions? And is it values clarification, which means I decide for myself, and hopefully you, what, I mean, it has a nice exterior, you're trying to help the children to make good moral decisions, but they're doing it in such a way that takes them right back to Genesis chapter 3, because their eyes are opened, determining for themselves what's good and evil, rather than receiving it from the outside, from divine revelation. So ask everyone that's teaching your children, how do you teach moral decision-making? Now, let's talk about drug prevention programs. You know, by the way, I get more heat on this, um, on moral relativism, but I mean, who could ever criticize a drug prevention program? Well, you know, I just did a whole series trying to keep young people off of marijuana as it gets legalized across the country. I'm not a drug proponent, but almost all the contemporary drug prevention programs are based squarely on values clarification. And at the end of the course, the young people might make the right decision regarding the use of drugs. Sometimes these programs don't. But in the process, they swallow the bait that brought original sin into the world. That's playing God by determining right and wrong. Uh, all public schools, I'm sorry, you're going to get moral relativism. Uh, colleges and universities, secular ones, you're going to get moral relativism. Uh, you're going to get moral relativism in a lot of Catholic institutions. You're going to have to actually uh, dig down for that. Now, here is something you might not connect with moral relativism, but at its root, moral relativism is rank idolatry. It's I determine right from wrong. I'm playing God. Now, indirectly, Modern advertising, which is nonstop towards young people and adults, what's the, what's the great line for modern advertising? It's all about you. You make the choice in your consumer actions. It's your preferences, your wishes, your buying decisions. And, you know, I, 
all of this is simply strengthening the ego, making us egocentric in our whole view of commerce. And all you'd need then is a couple of steps from, and you make your own moral choices. And you'll be hearing this. One of the reasons I'm not a Catholic deacon is I went for my first interview for the Catholic diaconate. And I was told, at least in that particular place, in no uncertain terms, that a requirement for modern deacons is to instruct people in basically values clarification. It was moral relativism. And I'm sorry, I had a little too much experience, I guess, in Genesis chapter 3 to swallow that bait. I said, no, thank you. How are our deacons being formed? How are our deacons being taught to teach people how to make moral decisions. And don't get me wrong, I realize there's some great diaconate programs around the country. This is just what I ran into as a new Catholic. And now I'd like to mention what I call the big blind side, the really big blind side. And I'm referring to the majority of Catholic scripture instruction going on in the 21st century and the late 20th century. You see, this is something that I've actually seen the defective approach to Scripture literally cause moral rot in the heart of the very denominations that I grew up in, in the very denomination my grandfather was a minister in, And namely, it was the higher critical methods that came from Germany to the United States. One of these theories regarding that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, the instructor of potential Lutheran ministers, they all lost their faith. He openly acknowledged that he caused the loss of their faith because of his theory, which is now taught in about 90% of Catholic seminaries in the United States. My guess is it's taught in the majority of Catholic diaconate training programs. My guess is at least three quarters of the Catholic colleges and universities on the Newman list of approved Catholic colleges and universities, they're teaching this morally defective view of scripture. And I realize that people get really hot when I mention this, but something's got to change. When 82% of Catholic millennials, that's Catholic young adults, believe in moral relativism, that there's no such thing as a right and wrong for everybody, we are in such deep trouble that, not to pull the alarm, how can one sleep at night? So here it goes. Moral relativism, and a lot of people don't pull this together, in approach to Scripture, The Bible is inerrant. In other words, it is without error. And that's why in the last episode, I cited Catechism section 103, which says that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach the truth of God for the sake of our salvation, which to see confided to the sacred Scriptures. Firmly, faithfully, and without error. Now, what the critical methods, and the critical methods can be used wisely and to really dig into the historical meaning of a text and then you apply it for today, that's great. 
But to take it to an excess is to approach Scripture saying, well, what was written by an authoritative author like an apostle or, or Moses, the God-appointed prophet, and what wasn't? And so I start determining what is authoritative and what isn't. I'm playing God. I'm back in Genesis 3. Or then I take it from there, what is true and what isn't true, or what is error and what isn't? What was written by an authoritative author? What wasn't? This is playing God with Scripture. And I told you people get mad at me when I talk about the drug prevention problems and values clarification. This is when people go ballistic because good people don't like to find out that what they have been taught could have a very deep root in error. You know, Pope Benedict XVI, being a German, knows all about German higher criticism. He's encountered it his entire life. And if you read his intro chapters to Jesus of Nazareth, that first volume, he talks about all the good, positive things that have come from these modern critical methods to really get at the root the historical method of Scripture. But then he goes on to warn, and the warning is not being followed through. The warning is basically fallen on too many deaf ears, because if you take this stuff too far, you're back to Genesis 3. And here's a statement from Pope Benedict XVI in Jesus of Nazareth. This is not my words. This is the words of Pope Benedict XVI, and I quote, the fact is that scriptural exegesis can become a tool of the Antichrist, unquote. And he was talking about Solaviv, who wrote the classic work on the Antichrist, and in that work, the Antichrist is given an honorary theology degree for his so great approach to Scripture. So you see, this is how it works. Did God say, did God really mean what he said that? No, uh, this is so pervasive. Here's some questions you can take to anyone teaching you, your children at college. Just ask them who actually wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Some sacred author, which means maybe not Moses, or Moses. Who actually wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when? Because they say, well, John wrote it, but it was in the second century. John didn't live into the second century. So who wrote it? And then third, who actually wrote the 13 epistles in which the first word is Paul? You've been listening to Faith and Family, episode 201, and I'm Steve Wood, your host. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.